following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Hey, everybody. Before we get going, I have a quick favor to ask. We need you to fill out a short survey. Just go to podcastone.com slash my survey or visit podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. The survey is completely anonymous and your responses will help us match the right advertisers to the right show. If you filled out a survey in the past, we thank you, but we still need you to do it again. With your help, we can keep the Forbes interview free to download and with minimal ads. Again, that's podcastone.com slash my survey, or please visit podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Thank you again. We were, as you might imagine, broke, dead broke, but our local tennis club had free court time at 10 p.m. So I would go over with another struggling entrepreneur and Honestly, I would whack these poor little fuzzy balls sobbing. I mean, the tears would be flowing down my cheeks as I was just letting out the stress. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. Before we take a listen, just want to give a quick but important thank you to Rocket Mortgage and ZipRecruiter. Right now, you can experience ZipRecruiter for free, saving you a couple hundred bucks when you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. You'll hear more about these companies later in the show. On today's show, we have Gary Hirschberg, who is the founder of Stonyfield, which was ahead of its time in everything from sustainability to organic to this yogurt fermented craze that we see going on right now. Gary, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. By the way, co-founder Samuel and Louise Kamen were really the creators of the recipe. So. Ah, co-founder, yes. yes. <laughs> the story of Stonyfield is fascinating. You grew up in a, in a business family, kind of tried to swear off business in college, and then you found yourself, you know, making yogurt on to experiment and with sustainability organics and suddenly you through a lot of struggle had a giant company so let's let's yeah, where, where do we like start that. 35 year overnight success yep exactly <laughs> just it's easy everybody it's very easy yeah don't don't even think twice no i was a child of a shoe uh, i was actually a third generation new hampshire manufacturer my grandfather and father were in the shoe business mm-hmm. Which, of course, as we all know, went south, literally went to South America and then ultimately to Asia, mm-hmm. um, leaving towns and communities sort of uh, adrift. And so, um, you know, the, the opportunity to move back to New Hampshire uh, after a liberal arts education in the environmental sciences was, was too good to pass up. But um, I must say, I, I came back to business a little bit reluctantly because of the, all, all the kind of. Uh, uh, chaos that had happened in the wake of of the collapse of this industry that had in my childhood employed thousands and thousands of of uh, my neighbors. It was a family business. Did you kind of pick up through osmosis that you realized later, like just the way to run a business, the way to you know capital works, the way marketing works, or were you kind of out of it as I mean, not as interested as a kid, or was it something that you couldn't get away from? Well, I, of course, my first jobs were in the factory. I mean, I, okay. I, I, it was, yeah, you were in a family business. You're, it's all hands-on. Yeah. Um, and I, I would say that I, uh, because it was a declining industry and a declining sector, um, it was mostly a lot of pain that I took in as a kid. I, mm-hmm. I saw a lot of unhappiness. Ultimately, my family's uh, business went bankrupt, mm-hmm. went under. Uh, my father tried to... Uh, keep the torch alive in in Brazil and then in China, um, but uh, you know those were sort of the pioneer days. So I I, I really uh, the the other part of this is that this was the '60s and I mm-hmm. was becoming like a lot of people more environmentally conscious okay. and I would watch all the pretty colors swirl out of the back of the factories and 
you know, was learning that that isn't exactly the proper way to behave either. So I, <laughs> I, I really left the business world uh, with a vengeance. Uh-huh. I went off to study at a very liberal arts college, Hampshire College, mm-hmm. where I created my own program and focused on um, studying Arctic and Alpine ecology. All right. Uh, but there is a link between that and organics eventually. The, the link was simply that I was studying climate change and learning that, in fact, agriculture makes one of the great contributions to the, our planet, planetary warming. And organic agriculture sequesters a lot more carbon, mm-hmm. uh, enhances biodiversity, and you know, generally is very, very good for the environment. It's, it's in, Instead of just being less bad, it's actually um, very restorative. So uh, the problem was that I was doing that work in a nonprofit incarnation. Mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan came in and slashed funding for uh, all things organic, in fact, renewable energy, in fact, everything my nonprofit was working on. And so we found ourselves in the early 80s um, short on funding for these nonprofits. Mm-hmm. My partner, the fellow I just mentioned, Samuel Kamen, had uh, a little organic farming school. I was on his board, and he had crafted this absolutely incredible recipe, uh, a yogurt recipe from the milk from his one cow one at cow. his farm school. Start with one cow. Exactly. And um, by the time I uh, joined him, we were up to seven cows. We had gotten a $35,000 loan from some Catholic nuns. Mm-hmm. That's a story unto itself. I can only imagine. <laughs> and, uh and, um, you know, we were kind of clueless about business. As I say, I had run the other direction. Samuel had, was about 20 years older than me, is about 20 years older, and, and mm-hmm. he had had a prior experience working in the defense industry um, in the 60s until he, as a sort of a 60s rebel, realized he didn't want to be any part of that, and he went off into organic farming. Yeah, that's a big change. Yeah, so, so he and I... Um, you know, knew a lot about the ecology side of it. He knew mm-hmm. a heck of a lot about the yogurt side of it. He had, he was a Brooklyn native, and he had um, learned from all of the uh, Hasids uh, who were making um, yogurt back in the, oh, okay. in the, in the back uh, the, the the back stall. And they had always told him it's all about the veda, you know, <laughs> the, the how, which is really true. It's about times and temperatures. Yep. But anyhow, so Samuel was a brilliant yogurt maker and a brilliant dairy person, and I was pretty good at managing um, from having been the executive director of my nonprofit. So the Stonyfield Empire started with one cow and an old... Um, 1792 guess, uh, farm, yeah, yes. And an mm-hmm. old uh, Brooklyn Jewish um, yes. yogurt recipe. Indeed, indeed. You have to start somewhere. Yeah. And you started selling the yogurt, to, is that to make up for the funding? The lo- exactly, lack of funding? exactly. We so if it, wasn't for, if it wasn't for Ronald Reagan, Stonyfield would no, never no, exist. No, 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 believe me, I have thanked uh, <laughs> Ronald Reagan many times. In fact, uh, as a, I, I must say, I, I even miss him now, but that's a different discussion, isn't it? I can imagine. <laughs> but... No, but it, it, it's true, and I, I think when you look around the organic food sector, which is now, of course, a $50 billion sector, a lot yep. of us had our start. We were all clueless back then. I often say we had a wonderful company, just no supply and no demand. Yep. <laughs> um, but uh, many of us got our start as a kind of a rebellious move, stepping, in our case, it was a necessary financial move to, to try to save our, our the mission of our farming school. But it was also uh, to prove a point, mm-hmm. to prove that you could that ecology really is good commerce, and I think we've done that. Now, as an entrepreneur, this is a fascinating story because I heard an interview um, with you on one of my favorite, my other favorite podcasts, NPR is how I built this, and the story is incredible of just kind of this almost a like Greek, a, like a Greek tragedy beginning of just you guys, you know, building up and getting hit with, you know, missteps and all this debt and you just kept on taking more risks and more risks and more risks. Like, 
get me through that mindset because you were starting a family and you could have done a lot of other things. But instead of kind of where men, most people have just given up, you just kept on getting at it. Like what was in that mindset? What were you thinking then? How did you, you know, pull through? Yeah, well, we learned the hard way what most private equity people already know, which is that if you get friends and family money in, you're much less likely to fold and collapse under the weight of the inevitable yeah. things that go wrong. Um, uh, and in my case, uh, when I arrived at the farm, I, I, I got there about five months after Samuel and Louise had started producing. And uh, he had burned through the $35,000. That was long gone. In fact, he had stopped paying bills altogether because wow. he knew his, his you know, angel was going to arrive. I, I was a fundraiser from mm-hmm. my nonprofit days. Uh, little did I know, though, that uh, by lunch on the first day, I calculated that we were about $75,000 in the red with zero chance of, of getting any revenue to pay it. We had, mm-hmm. like I said, seven cows, and and uh, we were selling to a couple of local, um, you know, it was like a $55,000 a year business, yep. a couple of local mom and pop stores. Mm-hmm. So I did what any self-respecting entrepreneur did. I called my mother and borrowed $25,000 of, of, of the seventy five that we owed and, and, you know, called a bunch of my other donors and, and bridged together kind of just sort of a rescue package to yeah. get us through with no clue of how to turn that into equity or, or if there'd ever even be a business. So this was essentially philanthropy. And, mm-hmm. and so, uh, but, you know, and then over time, as you say, we had a lot more calamity, um, uh, the, the, the one thing that kept going well and right was that consumers were just loving the product. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that I always tell entrepreneurs that if, as long as your product is actually or your service is actually superior to what's out there, you've got a fighting chance. If mm-hmm. it's the same as or less than, don't bother because you're going to obviously be outcompeted by someone with a stronger balance sheet. So it was a product that really kind of kept you going saying like we have a great thing and if we just get over these hurdles – this will eventually take off. Well, the, the, so there was that and then the fear of losing my mother's money. Yes. So, so the double whammy there was very, a nice combination. You know, we, you know uh, the Iranian hostage crisis had just happened, and we had an Iranian refugee who had resettled in uh, Milford, New Hampshire, right next to us. And mm. she drove up to the farm one day and said, you know, uh, Mr. Kamen, Mr. Hirschberg, this yogurt's the best thing I've had since the old country, where, of course, they know a little bit about yogurt. Yes. Iran, having eaten it for like 6,500 years there. And she said, I have a great piece of advice for you. You should call it a taste of Iran. Well, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini was on the front page. (laughs) That was a piece of um, advice we didn't take, but it was just testament to the kind of passion people had Mm -hmm. for the product. So so that that makes you a believer. Of course, this was pre-internet, so people would either drive up or send smoke signals or or send us letters, if you remember what those things are. I get a few every every few months. (laughs) And then, as I say, uh, you know, the, our our investors, no institutional investor would give me the time of day. Mm-hmm. Uh, our investors were friends, uh, people who are aligned with the mission, the Organic Farming School, um, the the uh, the idea of helping to support family farmers and show them a way that they could add value on their farms and not just produce commodity products, which keeps them at a very low margin. Yeah. And and so, um, you know, we gradually and rather quickly built a roster of FNFs, friends and families, uh, fa- family members who really and truly I carried with me 24 hours, 24 seven. Wow. And so, you know, the, the period I think you're referring to from the podcast is um, a, a very dark stretch in a, for about 20 months in uh, 1987, 88, where 
due to a whole series of calamities, we were burning $25,000 a week. By, wow. then, by then, the business was up to about $2 million in sales, but we were in a real skid. And uh, I was constantly raising money. I never, mm-hmm. you know, on a Wednesday night, I had never had cash in the bank for the $8,500 payroll the next day. And those were the days when probably we should have quit. In fact, my wife was begging me to. Yeah. Except for the fact that you know her mother now, because my mother-in-law was became an, actually our largest investor. Her mother was deep into it. So wow, you, you got a, you had both mothers on your on your yeah, back. Yeah, not not a good advi- piece of <laughs> advice. I don't urge anyone to do this. But but you know this these are the people who you count on, yeah. and and the institutional folks uh, count on you counting on them. They know you know if a suit comes in the room, yeah, you know you're okay. You're going to be one of the you know many deals that that fail. You, you you're not going to cry your baby blue eyes out for them, but mom, mother-in-law, forget it. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Is your company hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just crossing your fingers that the right people will see it. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, listeners to the Forbes interview can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes and save yourself a couple hundred bucks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes, ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. How did you deal with the stress at this point? You know, a dark twenty months. You had family involved. You had friends involved. You had banks involved. Yeah. Did you just kind of put your head down and stay optimistic, or were these like sleepless nights? No, no. Stress? We, well, it, they were literally sleepless nights because one of us had to make yogurt over do the night shift every other night. So, um, how long did that take? That was like I say, about twenty months till we got. I'm saying, how long is a night shift? So, what does making oh, yogurt entail? Oh, well, no, night shift means you finish your day job, which in my case was fending off creditors and borrowing money, um, and selling and demoing, and yeah. and then you started at nine thirty at night and went till five thirty in the morning till the first shift came in, wow. and and um, this was every other night. Um, no, I, I, you know, I. I don't know. I mean, I was young. Um, that's one answer. Another is that I found um, that as long as I got exercise, okay, um, I could survive. And our local tennis club, we were, as you might imagine, broke, dead broke. But our local tennis club had free court time at 10 p.m. Okay. So I would go over with another struggling entrepreneur. And honestly, I would whack these poor little fuzzy balls sobbing. I mean, the tears would be flowing down my cheeks as I was just letting out the stress. And, and worse than that, my then fiance and now still amazingly, miraculously, my wife, <laughs> um, she couldn't understand why, you know, if I got a free moment off of this mill that I would go off to play tennis with a, yeah. a guy friend instead of hanging with her. And, and I told her, I said, look, at I, you don't want me at home right yeah. now. I am not going to be a nice person. But that, uh, you know, release of stress was uh, really actually crucial in, in hindsight. And you know, Samuel uh, was, as I said, older. I mean, he became a maturity. He got diagnosed as a maturity onset diabetic during this period. And mm-hmm. you could say, well, that might have happened anyways. But there's no doubt that the stress took a toll uh, on us. Um, 
The other funny part of this story is that my mother-in-law, I'd mentioned these Wednesday nights before payroll, she was steadfastly loyal to me, just mm. incredible. She had co-opted a building in, um, in um, Hartsdale, New York, and made some money, and, and she proceeded to her daughter's horror to start to you know recycle that money into this lunatic yogurt business. And I would call her on Wednesday nights, tiptoeing over from my bedroom, which is 50 feet from the <laughs> office, to say, Mom... You know, Doris, would you, you know, loan me another thousand dollars? And I'd hear the click, click of call waiting, and it was my wife saying, yeah. "Mom, don't do this." Oh man! And so we actually had, as a triad, we had to figure out a relationship here, which ultimately was that Doris, my mother-in-law, and I kept secrets that um, we we wouldn't tell Meg how much money was in, and Meg didn't want to know. Wow! So you know, you 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 find a way. Um, I mean, I think. This just goes to the sort of more generic point, which is that I think determination is probably um, the most undervalued mm. and most critical and, and underappreciated uh, attribute for success. And I think, you know, when you look at private equity, and now, of course, I am an active investor, yeah. um, I think understanding the who and what's really there and where they come from and um, is is really crucial because stuff's going to happen. I, I'm mm-hmm. not saying it's going to be as calamitous as us <laughs> at twenty five thousand bucks a week. And again, there were reasons that we got into this mess. But um, but the flip side of that is that when we finally hit the absolute wall where we had come up with a solution, yeah. which was to have a dairy in Vermont <clears throat> start producing for us, and we would then be relieved of the manufacturing, get our gross margins in order, and we could focus on sales and marketing. And they actually pulled the rug out from under us after mm-hmm. about six months of negotiating. And we were left literally driving in a blizzard, Samuel and I, back to um, the farm with one of us to make yogurt that night and to face my then-pregnant wife with the bad news that this miraculous deal wasn't going to happen. Um, that's when I, we dug in deep. And on that drive back in the dark, again, no cell phones to bother you, no cell service there anyways, but um, we started designing a yogurt plant. Wow. and. You know, you would think that this was about the most absurd thing because we really should have been writing our resumes at that point. <laughs> and when I got home and, I, and, and, and Meg, who had been just desperately hoping that this deal would be done, she said, well, is it done? Is it signed? I said, no, 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 that deal's not going to happen, but we have a much better idea. Uh, and I slept alone that night. Yeah. But, I, but, but the next morning, you know, we both uh, went our different directions. I drove up to Concord to the state capitol. We met with the SBA, met with the bank, got our shareholders together and Samuel proceeded to cost out this yogurt plant, and we just, you know, hit this absolute nadir. There was nowhere da- further mm-hmm. down to go. But There's, yet, somehow in that moment, I would say, A, it was the two of us, it was having a partner. B, it was the motivation of not losing our family's money. And C, at that point, you know, we had nothing to lose yeah. literally nothing to lose. It's funny, I have a lot of great people on, on this show, and it, you hear those two storylines. Either there was like that was it. There was there was no safety net, or they figured, hey, like we're gonna we have like one year to make this happen. Let's just do it our own way. And if it whatever, like if we're gonna go down, we might as well go down. We would have killed we to do. have a year. Yeah, <laughs> we had a couple of days to make it happen. What was this like? The motivation. Obviously, you said you had family. You had money from family and loved ones. Um, you don't want to let them down. And also, was it? Did you kind of have a? Was it a environmental ethos too? Like, did you feel pressure? Like, this is an organic company that we want to show the world. This is how you should do it, and you can make money. Did you feel pressure as well as kind of 
an activist environmentalist or was it more just I'd say that came later this came is later. just pure sur- survival yeah this was this was you know on the island and and and, and how to get off um, and how'd you guys get off oh, God, you said 20, a 12 month 20 month skid yeah how'd you so get back the, on the so, road so that moment that I mentioned where I went up to the SBA and Samuel started designing the plant was about month 14 of mm-hmm. the 20 and uh we managed to somehow put the debt together. We played a little bit of stone soup. You yep. know, we went to the SBA and said, well, we've got a bank and we've got shareholders ready to do their part. Of course, that wasn't exactly true. Yep. And then we went to the bank and the shareholders and said, look, the SBA is all signed up. But we somehow managed to sort of bullshit this thing yep. into existence. And and then uh, literally six months later, we opened this factory. And that's mm-hmm. really where we were at last able to... Um, gain a modicum of control of our destiny. But mm-hmm. it, it, it took that sort of desperate lunge. And you could say, well, why hadn't you opened the factory before that? Well, we we never dreamt we could afford it. But in the end, it turned out we couldn't afford not mm-hmm. to. This was a $592,500 um, <laughs> discount factory job. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> horribly, the first week we opened it, um, the, the engineers we had uh, put to work in a short order had unfortunately uh, plumbed in what's called a dead leg which is a which is a part of the tubing that doesn't the cleaning solutions didn't make it so oh, it was okay. actually accruing a negative ba- bad bacteria so we actually were producing drinkable yogurt when we were supposed to be producing stirrable yogurt <laughs> um, meaning that the cultures wouldn't set up because they were being contaminated so for the first you know at the great final moment of exhalation we're about to open this new factory out comes this, you know, goop, and so that true was a pretty painful uh, stretch. But but a new pro- a new product, by, yeah, by ahead of our time. Yes. Yeah, but it, but it, but as it turned out, um, that really was, uh, you know, it w- it was gaining control of our destiny. That was really it. It was it was having a factory that we could control. We were mm. not at the the reason we had gotten into that tailspin before is that we had been in another factory that had gone under. Yeah, and so by having at least some sense of our own control and by being able to run it and also to do it at scale at a place, not a, not a hill, hilltop farm at the mm-hmm. end of an eight-tenths of a mile dirt road, which was Stonyfield Farm, but a real factory with real pavement and real electricity and no wood-fired boilers and all the funky hippie stuff that we had mm-hmm. you know, strung together to start the thing. Uh, we were actually able to make fantastic product once we solved that mm-hmm. little dead leg problem. And more importantly, we were able to get to scale. And what, what happened is we the company, um, when we opened up that factory, we were uh, running at about $6.5 million, um, annually, and we quickly got ourselves to 10 and that's mm-hmm. where we broke even. Wow. And it's interesting because you you, in the beginning, you guys faced some really tough, I guess you call it macro pressure, nothing to do with you, whether it's the, you know, the recession in 1987 and other things. And then suddenly you, you, know, you survived, and then it's, you got, got to ride this incredible kind of trend that you know, thanks to the big move to organic, the big move to companies like Whole Foods, this yogurt craze kind of thing. Yeah. Has it gotten like, could you believe that yogurt is as big as it is now? And like, did you ever think that this kind of organic food push and sustainable food push would go so mainstream kind of in your lifetime or so? Well, we believe, we always believed yogurt would be big. You know, when we started, um, yogurt as a category was growing about 19% annually because of course, Americans were not we're completely unfamiliar with this product that is a staple around the world. Mm-hmm. And it's still, our per capita consumption is still much lower than any Western nation. So 
we always saw an upside there uh, at our time. I remember when the sector was about 800 million in total sales, and now it's you know six billion. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's still got uh, you know a long uh, you know a big upside still here. But of course now it's become far more competitive, and and the shelf space has not kept up with the uh, variety and the choice and the demand. And of course, don't forget, most of the world eats yogurt as a savory product. We mm-hmm. haven't even figured that out in this country yet. We're starting to get some um, Lebanese and, and, and recipes that, that mimic sort of uh, you know what, what, what most of the world. What kind of flavors are popular? Well, around the world, of course, yogurt is a part of every meal. Mm-hmm. So it's with salt, it's with peppers, it's with uh, uh, spices. Um, it, in fact, uh, most folks who come from the Mediterranean or Eastern Europe or India. They don't even recognize what we consume as yogurt mm-hmm. here. It's too sweet. It's yeah, full of sh- sometimes full of sugar. All full of yeah, but you know we see now Greek, we see Icelandic, we yeah. see drinkable, spoonable, pouchable, uh, squeezable, and and it's finally starting to evolve in the direction of the European or the or the Middle Eastern shelf. So there's there's still upside there, but um, what has really excited me though to answer your question is is the rise of organic that mm-hmm. that was the challenge um you know most people didn't know what the word meant if they knew anything about it they thought it meant that you have to chew extra because yeah. <laughs> you know those dirty dusty natural food stores with yeah, the ec- yeah. extra heavy breads and and the broccoli with the moths swirling around them i mean you know i was part of that world so i can say uh with with some humility that i think a lot of us had to realize at some point which we which we did in the in the mid 90s uh, that it's really food and it has to taste great and now mm-hmm. of course you know organic is is the watch it it, it means better cuisine it means gourmet uh, uh three-star restaurants proudly promote their organic greens on the menus and so forth and 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 chefs the chef best chefs in the world proudly talk about their organic ingredients but um we had to mature as a sector i mean and i say we because we mm-hmm. were part of it we yeah. were uh, fortunately, you know the thing that always worked for us is what I talked about earlier. Samuel's recipe was and and is incredible, and our recipe really hasn't changed hmm. uh, much at all, other than taking new forms. But our whole milk cream on top, um, plain yogurt, is the same yogurt we made on the farm way back when. Wow! And you guys, you sold a majority of the company to Danone in the late nineties, two thousand and one, two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the very late nineties. Um, what was that like? Because obviously this is this was your baby. This you you were you know put everything on the line for this. You didn't sleepless decades for this. <laughs> yeah. Was it a hard? I mean, was it a hard sell? Was it uh, was it time? How did that kind of? So I had two hundred and ninety seven shareholders at that point, owing to the fact that no institutional investor still would really pay attention. And again, uh, one thing I meant to say before about organic and, and the reason the institutional investors wouldn't pay attention is you have to understand that. At that point, yogurt was either three for a dollar or, you know, Dannon had 49 cent yogurt. Well, we, we couldn't even consider selling for less than 75 to 79 cents out mm-hmm. there. And, and our, our, our courts, our large size was similar premium. So, you know, so you're like almost triple the price? Du- well, certainly double uh-huh. uh, the, 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 the average price out there, but always at least 25 to 30% above anybody else. So, um, you know, investors couldn't make sense of that. Yeah. We didn't have the millennial consumer today, 66% of whom will now, according to the stats, say they'll pay more for sustainability. They'll 50-plus mm-hmm. percent will pay more if it's local or organic. And But but that didn't exist. We had, Like I said, we had no consumer. So we had to make it on our own, and so we couldn't 
we we were all dependent on friends and family. Mm-hmm. And it, but it was also time to get those people an exit. Two thousand and one yes. was se- uh, year eighteen. Some of those folks had started, you know, lent to us when they were, you know, had no kids. Now their kids were going to college. That were, it's a long, or, or it's a long, long term in, in investment. Indeed, yeah. and don't forget mom and the mother in law too. So, um, so it was necessary for me to get them an exit. Also, Samuel was wanting to retire. Mm-hmm. Um, he, like I said, was a couple decades older, and he deserved to retire and and, and be um, start a different kind of life with grandkids and so on. So. The art here was I needed to find an exit without exiting myself because yeah. I, I, I was starting to feel like I was getting a handle on this thing. So we we cut a deal with Danan. Um, and by the way, we talked to probably 25 strategics. Mm-hmm. We, by, by the way, we first looked at going public. But Ben and Jerry's had um, gone public three years before us, and they're dear friends of mine. And, and then I watched the, the first hostile takeover attempt oh, by wow. dryers to buy B&Js and eventually actually played a role in helping Unilever to buy them, but mm-hmm. in a less hostile uh, acquisition. But still, I, I realized when you go public, you're selling your company. Yeah. So we decided to do a sort of a managed acquisition. And and the and in the end, out of the 21 or 22 strategics who came to see us, Danan was the one company willing to partner with me where um, they would buy eventually in, in two tranches 80%. In other words, buy Samuel and all the other shareholders mm-hmm. out but leave me fully in control. And taking a quick break, but we'll be right back. Support for the Forbes interview podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask, why? Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process. It gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Well, you know, I didn't have to do the deal. Mm. Um, that's one of the other advantages of not having an institutional investor. Is I, no one investor had that kind of leverage I over see. me. But more importantly, um, and Franck Ribot, the then chairman of Danone, said it best. He said, look, this represents an ethic that we're purchasing here. This isn't just a business. This yeah. is, he said, if we're going to be successful in the 21st century, it's going to be because of the kind of ethics that Stonyfield is showing of huh. transparency and trust and and integrity in the supply chain. And indeed, you know, Dan and Yogurt here in the U.S. is now non-GMO, and we've launched, during my 15 years with Danon, we launched uh, a number of organic businesses around the world, one of which is their fastest-growing brand today. It's mm. a brand in France that I helped to found called Les Devaches. But then we ran into, um, in 2016, um, I helped Danon to uh, negotiate and sort of conceive of the acquisition of White Wave Foods, mm-hmm. which um, they've now bought. And we were going to put the two companies together, but the DOJ uh, determined that concentrating uh, too much of a concentration of organic milk 
was more than they could uh, swallow. Wow, the organic milk monopoly. Well, the funniest thing <laughs> about that is, you know, a month after we announced the acquisition of White Wave with Danone, um, Bayer announced that they were going to buy Monsanto. Yeah. And so then we went through this very painful um, divestiture where Denon had to sell Stonyfield and we were back out as an orphan. But as you may have noticed, uh, the $69 billion acquisition of Monsanto still went through. So, yes. so they didn't want a couple hundred million dollars of organic milk to be combined. But hey, what the heck? Let's put these guys, other guys together. But anyways, I digress. Yes. But um, so as it turns out, this last chapter has really been very exciting. It, um because the company now, last August, the company was acquired in a in an auction that mm-hmm. Denon managed um, by a company called Lactalis, which is the biggest uh, food company you've never heard of. Yeah. It's a twenty three billion dollar family owned company, Pri- Liter- private company, private company. Wow. Two brothers and a sister are the board of this third generation company, and I have to say that being in a private environment again is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, to 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 be point pointed about it i i had sort of drifted into the background with denon i wasn't real happy with um stonyfield was a, a successful mature company and they, i i feel that they took more profit out and invested less than mm-hmm. they should have and and you know my voice had become diminished and so then one on the morning after lactalis bought stonyfield they called and said can we have um, breakfast together and mm-hmm. we we got together and they said, look, um, we overpaid for this company. We all knew that because mm-hmm. it was an auction and Denon did manage it beautifully. Uh, and we know that in order to get a successful ROI, we've really got to get back to some of those core values. So we'd like you to come back in and, and do some of that mischief you used to do. Oh, so no, no more retirement. Well, you know, a friend of mine says retire means you get new tires. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I was always, it's look, it's still your baby, yeah. you know. And and it always stayed in New Hampshire, right? Even though yeah. all the Oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and I and I I had still been chairman and I was still mm-hmm. involved. My signature was still in the cups, the recipes. Yeah. You know, I I did have certain veto rights at that point even still. Um but um but what's become exciting now is that Lactalis has really embraced the original, something you asked about a few minutes ago, yeah. the original mission of the company, which was to be an advocate for a different way of thinking about farming and food and uh, and about showing respect for consumers by by um, being honest and transparent with them about what is and what isn't in, yes. our, in our food. And so now, you know, we've launched, for example, um, in my new tenure, a really exciting project. We just celebrated our 35th birthday in April. And We've adopted. We've put a half a million dollars into a fund to adopt 35 cities across the country to help them convert their playing fields to organic. And you could say, well, wait, what's that have to do with yogurt? Well, obviously, it's a play on the name Stony Field. We yep. call the project Stony Fields. But it turns out 21 million kids play on soccer or baseball or lacrosse fields every day or walk in parks, 90% of which are sprayed with a cocktail of toxins, huh. uh, herbicides. So the very same things that we learned through organic farming, which is you don't need that stuff, you can be highly productive, uh, turns out to be very applicable in communities. And here's the good news is um, when when the kids um, are no longer exposed, and don't forget the skin is the biggest organ in our body. Yeah. So if you fall or dive on the, the field chasing a ball, you're, you're likely to be absorbing some of that herbicide, mm-hmm. and it can likely go right to your bloodstream. And, of course, we now know these are all dangerous herbicides so what's the alternative so going organic and we know what does that mean well it means not using 
persistent pesticides and herbicides mm-hmm. on your other, field. Other, other things people use instead? Yeah, compost. You know, compost. Compost. And as it turns out, and by the way, we didn't come up with this. This is the based on the brilliant work of a group of moms in Irvine, California, right mm-hmm. in the center of Orange County, a heavily pesticided area. Um, this group of moms called Non-Toxic Irvine converted their town's fields. They Recognizing that glyphosate, which you know is Roundup, um, actually does have Im- impacts on our body chemistry and mm-hmm. on our brain development and dicamba and 2,4-D, even worse, these other herbicides. They just said, we don't want to have that. We don't want to have our kids exposed to this stuff. It doesn't matter how much organic food you eat if they're rolling around the grass or mm-hmm. not washing their hands or whatever after they've been exposed. So, in fact, one of these moms, the, the, these folks were so successful, she be, wound up becoming the, the mayor of the city. <laughs> so we are borrowing, taking a page out of their book and working also with a wonderful nonprofit called Beyond Pesticides. Mm-hmm. And what we've learned is that uh, not only is it great to eliminate these uh, pesticides and herbicides, but by year three, it saves the taxpayers money. It's actually less expensive to manage your parks and your mm-hmm. fields and your playing fields and your school fields organically than it is conventionally, which is um, you know, fabulous. It means the taxpayers benefit yeah, as well. Every, everybody wins. Everyone wins. So we're doing this kind of thing, and we've, we've taken on uh, you know, focusing on the midterm elections, for example, mm-hmm. um, uh, in a nonpartisan way, but just saying, look, um, you know, with the dismantling of the EPA, which is not in anybody's best interest, mm-hmm. we need a Congress that believes in st- strong environmental uh, protections and in, in, in science and in the regulatory environment and climate change and so forth. So we are now in partnership with Environmental Working Group publishing the um, voting records of Congress people and candidates running for office, mm-hmm. Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, whatever. If and, 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 and again, showing respect for our consumer, which is really the hallmark of what we did from the very beginning. We, we never, because our cost of goods were always higher, our gross margins were mm-hmm. lower, we never had money for advertising or yeah. promotion. And yet we managed these sort of double-digit compounded growth rates by, I think, being honest and transparent and talking about issues that actually are meaningful to consumers. And, of course, nowadays... Uh, the millennial consumer, you know, half of whom are are, are moms mm-hmm. or parents, um, you know, they they know more. They have access to more information than ever before. And if you're going to grow in this competitive climate, because again, shelf space is not kept up with the number of brands and 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 consumer choices out there, then it's going to be because you've created an emotional relationship yeah. with that consumer. And if there was anything that we really pioneered at Stonyfield, other than incredible yogurt, it's just that. I think it's learning how to communicate respectfully and um, to uh, adopt and 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 act in a, in manners that uh, our consumers know mm-hmm. that we've really got their backs so this isn't just about selling them pesticide free stuff or selling or, or supporting family farmers it's really about um, a cultural commitment to uh, to uh, reducing the the likelihood that mm-hmm. their their children are going to be exposed to things that can hurt them. It's interesting because you mentioned you know parenthood and especially motherhood. I'm seeing around my peer group that when family when when women get pregnant, that's when they I mean they're healthy before, but they a lot of people really focus Absolutely. on what they're putting into their bodies, and then when the, the kids come, it's always been true. The number one, uh, the number one and number two reasons that people go to organic are number one becoming a parent and yep. number two having a health event yep. but now according to the president's cancer panel we know that one in two men and one in three women are going to develop cancer in our lifetimes Those, that's a trend line that's wow. on its way up we know that one in 56 kids boys now is going to um, uh, be diagnosed as autistic that number was one in 10,000 when Stonyfield hmm. started 
And we know that now that pesticides and herbicides are at the root of a lot of this, that these uh, compounds act as neurotoxins. Um, Dr. Phil Landrigan up here in Mount Sinai and his wife uh, published an absolutely brilliant uh, treatise, a book recently that um, t- talks, it's, it's called Chemicals in the Environment, What, what mm-hmm. Everyone Should Know. Yeah. And unfortunately, what we now know is that by focusing most of our attention when it comes to cancer, for example, on the treatment side, we've missed the boat, which yeah. is that prevention is really the cheapest form of health care there is. And, and obviously, uh, you know, with prevention, you can avoid not only the tragedies of these illnesses that of these avoidable illnesses, but billions and billions and billions of dollars yeah. of our national capital that could instead go into something positive. Well, that's what organic and is. eat much eat much better too. And eat much better too. And 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 you know to be blunt about it, if if you know I mentioned the things I'm proudest of, one of them is that you know today from the one cow and then the seven cows, uh, we now support with our partners at uh, Organic Valley. The, the, the dairy co-op, mm-hmm. we support yep. 1,650 dairy farmers, wow. average herd size of 65 cows, all of whom are making money. I have farm friends in Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine who make money with 30 cows. Wow. You can't do that with conventional agriculture. Mm-hmm. So we've really, that original goal, that original dream way back then, we've really, um, I think, advanced something, which is to say that when you go organic, every to your point a few moments ago, it's really win, 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 win commerce. Mm-hmm. The farmers win. The animals win. By the way, they live twice as long as uh, twice as long as conventionally yeah. grown animals. Uh, the consumer obviously wins, and in the end, our national debt, our national mm-hmm. budget wins because we can put money into um, useful things instead of uh, you know the, the very inflationary process of treating sickness after it's happened. Yeah. But speaking of money, I forgot to ask before we wrap this up. You know, your mother and mother-in-law were your seed investors, and they gave a ton of money. Um, and well, life savings almost um, yes. to, to you guys. What was it? What was the return at the end? Was it was it worth the risk? Uh, absolutely. Yeah they uh, they did extremely well. You know, I'll, I'll just tell you anecdotally. Um, one of our dairy farmers in those days, he, he had at one point I owed him five thousand dollars for milk, mm-hmm. and I couldn't pay it. And I said, "Look, it would you take stock?" Now, and a, a dairy farmer thinks stock he thinks that's one one thing, but yes. I said, "No, I mean like this piece of paper. paper yeah. I'm going to give you." <laughs> And, and, and he said, I don't know, I got kids going into college and, you know, and I said, look, I'm going to just be really straight with you. I can't pay it. And, and, and so he said, okay, okay, we'll do this. Well, I wound up uh, bringing him a check uh, for $450,000 when this deal finally closed. That's a good and, return. Yeah. That's, like a, guy, that's like a Berkshire Hathaway like return. And this guy, well, I didn't tell you how many years, so, oh. but, but we'll leave that aside. But it, it but this guy, this giant guy whose whose wrists were like the size of my thighs you know gave me this bear hug that i will never forget because that check paid off all of his kids tuitions all of his debt and all of his mortgages and so you know we had a lot of those wonderful success successes as well and and frankly he earned every penny of that by uh, his patience and his his faith in us well i'll I'll loan you milk anytime you want those kind of returns (laughs) Happily. Well, well, that was great. Well, I want to thank Gary Hirschberg, the co-founder of Stonyfield and um, just a great advocate for, uh, for food and sustainability. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Spencer Raskoff, the CEO of Zillow Group, and I have a new podcast here on Podcast One called Office Hours. Listen as I have one-on-one conversations with other CEOs. We have the kind of conversations that can only happen between peers, tackling tough questions, sharing hard-won insights, and helping to define what leadership means today. Join me twice a month on Office Hours, exclusively on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the new Podcast One app.